large view? Uh, thank you. Okay. Stuart just gave me the recorder. I cannot handle electronic equipment while I'm trying to talk. So here we are. Thank you, Stuart. Okay. So we're talking about, in large group, we're talking about um, the I am statements of Jesus. Basically, we're looking through the Gospel of John, and we're seeing where Jesus stops and talks about himself. Okay? He talks about who he is to a group of followers, people who are tracking around with him in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. And he, says to, he also tells us who he is, us, people who are reading the scriptures 2,000 years later. Um, so we've been going through Jesus' statements, and they begin a lot with, I am. Right? I am the light of the world, I am the bread of, the lo- of life, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd, and so on. So the working title of our series is, I am defines who I am. Okay, are we ready for this? Ready? The best part of waking up is folders in your cup. Ready? I am defines who I am. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, yes, catchy slam dunk, catchy grand slam right there. So, what a great title. Um, Anyway, seriously, what I'm trying, what we're up to here with this title is to try to describe how knowing the I am changes who I am. That is, it doesn't just change how I understand myself, it transforms every part of me. Knowing Jesus transforms every part of me. Okay, so that's what we're up to. We have to, in order to do this, we have to look at Jesus, we have to take him at his word, and we have to look at those places where he describes himself in detail, and that's why we're going to the scripture. Um, And some of you probably have your doubts about the scripture, Uh, maybe you've learned this in class, or in life, or with friends, Um, but I think... It bears at least an investigation. And one of the reasons is it's one of the most tested and approved documents in the history of mankind. So uh, just think about that as, you, as the next time we struggle with Scripture. All right. Before we look tonight at John chapter 11, uh, that's what we're going to look at. Uh, let me just kind of remind you where we've been. I'll be very brief about this. We talk about this a lot. So briefly. Um, I introduced you to Jesus. I said, hey, here's Jesus. And you guys said, hey, how are you, Jesus? And we did that in Exodus chapter 3 and John chapter 1. Um, we learned that Jesus, or God, calls himself Yahweh in Exodus, in the Old Testament. And Yahweh is the Hebrew way of saying, translated best, I am. And that's actually why I am is in caps in your, in your booklet thing. Because I am is the name of God. Um, and so when Jesus says, I am the vine, for instance... He's not just saying, hey, I'm a lot like a vine. He's saying, I'm God who is like a vine. So every time he says, I am, he's saying, I'm God. We also learn to see the real Jesus. We have to behold. Um, We have to confess what John the Baptist confessed, that we're not Jesus. So we have to get out of the way, so to speak. Finally, we looked at a bunch of I am statements uh, in a row, in succession. I am the Messiah, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd. And that brings us up to where we are, okay? This week we're going to look at I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. We're going to look at the passage that grounds that, what the context is there. So if you could turn your Bibles to John chapter 11, if you have a Bible, if you don't, that's totally fine. Look at your blue sheet. You've got really, really small print for you. So you can lose your eyesight at a premature age. Um, so would you stand for the reading of scripture? We're going to look at John chapter 11, verses 17 through 46. 17 through 46 of chapter 11 of John. Okay. 
Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb that is dead for four days. Bethany, where Lazarus was buried, was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had to come to Martha, had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met with him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, yeah, yeah, I know, that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, no, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to Jesus, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, Psst, the teacher's here, and is calling for you. And when she heard it, Mary rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may also believe you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. These are the words of God. They are more precious than gold, even much fine gold. And they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity to get up here um, to, to be together in community, to study your word. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would make our hearts ache and hunger to hear. I know that we've come from different places. Even just 30 minutes ago, we came from different places. Um, We've came from different places emotionally and spiritually. We've come from different places physically even. And I pray, Father, that you would meet us all where we individually are, that you would comfort us, that you would challenge us, that your spirit would fill each and every one of us, that we would know, Jesus, who you are. We would know why this is important to sit at your feet. We would know the power of gazing at you and beholding you, and that it would transform us from one glory to another. 
We ask these things because your word promises them, and we plead the promises of your scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. Let me tell you about a, a girl I went to college with. Um, her name was Catherine Costa. Okay, Catherine Costa. Catherine was a short girl with lots of curly black hair. Okay, And when she was a theater major, and when she frowned, she looks like Lucy from the Peanuts comic strip. Okay, She looks a lot like her big head, everything. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't know if you know Lucy in the Peanuts strip. She's the one who like takes the football away from Charlie Brown every time she tries to kick the football. Anyway, and she thinks it's really funny. Um, and Charlie Brown gets really mad and just sort of frowns with his one hair on top of his head. Anyway, um, I went to a very small college, about 1,600 students. Um, so I shared a few classes with Catherine Costa. We even shared a dorm room, or dorm, not dorm, dorm room hall. <laughs> Watch out, tear. Okay. <laughs> Let's recover. Okay. So we shared a hall together. So it was Catherine and I. We coexisted as fellow students. And we, were, we weren't really friends, but, you know, because it was 1,600 people and everyone knew everybody, we sometimes said hello or goodbye. Um, that's sort of the nature of our relationship. Anyway, I'll never forget sitting in the cafeteria, what sort of, for my college was Taos and eating with a bunch of friends, and someone came up and delivered this news. I was trying to get back into the swing of things. I was trying. We had just gotten back from spring break, and I was thinking about the finals and the papers that were, that were dead ahead, uh, silently stressing, I'm sure. And someone told me that Catherine Costa wasn't coming back to Davidson College. And I said, why? And they said, she's dead. She's dead. I asked how, and they said she fell asleep at the wheel, coming back or going home from school, and she ran full blast into the median of a highway and died on impact. I would love to tell you that I broke down on the spot, and for weeks I I practiced, uh, you know, dabbed, uh, I was denial, um, I was angry, I was bargaining, I was depressed. There was a whole series of emotions going through me, but that would be a lie. That would be a lie. That's not what happened. I'm pretty sure I said something at the moment that was appropriately sympathetic. And maybe even for a moment or a few moments afterwards, here and then, I felt sympathy. But for the most part, I just went back to talking with my friends and silently stressing about my final exams. I don't really need to tell you the story of Catherine Costa and my reaction to her. We can just look a little bit closer to home. Just about a year ago, a girl named Emily Line died. Um, she had a grand mal seizure in Garcia Hall dorm. Many of you remember Emily. She went with RUF to White Sands, our, our cookout, and she also went on our camping retreat to Rio Doso. And probably we all remember our reaction to her death too, then last year, and now a year later. And my goal is not to get us to go on some guilt trip, okay, some guilt trip to to the land of misery. That's not my goal. My primary purpose is this. People die all of the time and all of a sudden, but we mostly live as if death doesn't really happen. 
Okay, let me say that again. People die most of the time and all of a sudden. But we mostly live as if death doesn't really happen. Or at least death can never really happen to us. Right? That's their bad. That's their mistake. Look, I could quote a ton of scholars on this. I could go all day and all night on different people and what they think. But let me just say the obvious. Culturally speaking, our culture denies death. That's what we're all about. Just walk down the center aisle of a Walgreens, you'll figure that out pretty dang quickly. I mean, isn't oil of Olay a whole industry towards the denial of death? Anyway, moving on. Okay, culturally death is something for us that happens to other people. Okay? And perhaps that's why this sermon already feels irrelevant or way too heavy. Or we're told culturally that death is, is just uh, something that happens um, to other people. They're to blame. They saw it coming. But then again, how do we reconcile the fact that we've all felt a little drowsy behind the wheel? We're told culturally that it's just decomposition. That it's just rotting. That it's just physically falling apart. That's all death is. But is who we are only physical? Is everything about us just going to rot? Is entropy going to win the day? Look, death is an easy topic to address. I'm not excited up here, jumping up and down to talk about death. Okay, Honestly, it's very difficult to talk about. Uh, A man named Steve Brown, who's my professor in graduate school, used to tell me, death is scary. It scares everybody. It's sad. It's a big deal. It's not natural. It's a tragedy. I think he's right. If you think deep down inside, we all feel like death isn't supposed to be that way. That death isn't normal, and life isn't supposed to work in the way that it always ends in death. And that's why everything in our young selves right now wants to push back against this topic. Say, get out of here. Get out of my thoughts. Get out of my heart. Uh, And likewise, we want to push off Jesus and how he comforts us in that moment, in that topic of death. And we want to wait until some future day when we're sick unto death, and then we can talk about things like this when it's easier or when it's more relevant and more pressing. But it's never easy, and it never feels relevant. John chapter 11, verses 17 through 46, press us into the present firmly. There Jesus addresses all the pain, all the numbness, all the denial of death, straight on, head on. And he answers our mostly silent, our mostly secret questions that we have about God in the midst of death. In the passage, Jesus comforts Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Jesus comforts them and us with the same claim he makes over and over and over again. He, Jesus, is bigger than death. Jesus is better than death. That's what he says over and over again. John 11, 17-46 tells us Jesus is bigger and better than death. And then it asks a question, a pointed question, over and over again. Do we believe that Jesus is this resurrection and this life? 
Our passage tells us and shows us that Jesus is bigger than death. And it does it in two different ways. Verses 17 through 27, Jesus truthfully tells Martha and us he's bigger than death. And in verses 28 through 44, Jesus lovingly shows Mary, then Lazarus, then us, he's bigger than death. So verses 17 through 27, Jesus is bigger than death, that's what we're told. And then verses 28 through 46, we're told Jesus, or shown, Jesus is bigger than death. Okay? And so really we're hearing the same thing over and over again, but the mode in which we're told or we're shown is changing. And Jesus has a question over and over again, and it's a question that Mary and Martha and Lazarus all have to wrestle with at some level, because it's our question too. Do you believe this? Do I believe this? Do we believe that Jesus is bigger than death? Let me set the scene in verses 17 through 27, okay? Mary and Martha send word via messenger, ancient Near Eastern post office, and the guy runs down Jesus and says, Hey, Mary and Martha's uh, brother Lazarus, he's dying, Jesus. They are asking you to come and heal him. That's a lot of faith right there. But what does Jesus do in the midst of that faith? He says, not right now. He waits two days. He waits two days to start traveling back to Lazarus. Meanwhile, Martha and Mary are weeping and crying. They've watched their Lazarus go from bad health to worse health to death. And by the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, where we pick up the story, four days have passed. Lazarus has been in the tomb dead as a doornail four days. And that's where Martha comes out on the road and greets, and greets uh, Jesus. That's the context. That's where she goes up to speak with him. And it makes sense in that context, right, that, that Mary decides not to go out to the road and not to speak to Jesus, right? But interestingly enough, even later in the passage, Mary says the same thing that Martha says. It's a greeting of sorts. It says, Lord, if you had been there, my brother Lazarus would not have died. If you had been there, my brother Lazarus would not have died. In other words, Jesus, where were you when Lazarus died? Where were you when it really, really mattered? I'm sure some of us ask that question all the time. But do you see how Mary and Martha encourage us, they move us to pierce through the veil, peace pierce through the denial of death for just a minute? Look at how honestly they come with all of their selves to Jesus, with all of their doubts and all of their frustrations. Can we ask God, where were you when my grandma died? Are we, can we ask God, where are you in the cancer that is slowly killing my uncle? Where are you in the rising death toll of Superstorm Sandy? Where are you, God? Can we ask that? Can we enter into that conversation with him? Some of us, like Martha, tend to turn to Jesus immediately to speak with him in prayer about other people's death and about death as a topic, our own death even, maybe, and our fear of that. Like Martha, maybe we eagerly run to him with all the right answers for him to tell us. Or maybe some of us, like Mary, take our time. We don't usually come immediately to Jesus in prayer. Like Mary, we finally and reluctantly come as we are to Jesus, weeping, frustrated. But the most important thing is not how we pray to Jesus. 
It's that we pray that we come to Jesus at all. (laughs) Do we get this? Do we get this? Don't let how you pray, don't let the technique, don't let the emotional capital you bring to the relationship, don't let that not let you come to Jesus. We need to come to Jesus about things like this. Otherwise, we just ignore them. Otherwise, we shelf them for a time later in my mortality. Jesus comforts both Mary and Martha, and he comforts us, and he meets us all in the very different and very personal ways where we are. That's the beautiful thing about the story. He soothes our need to be right, and he smooths our reluctance. He encourages our eagerness, and he welcomes our authenticity. Jesus will comfort us if we come to him about death. Whether you come to him with genuine desire, or we come to him because we think we have to, or we come reluctantly with very little hope. Just look at Jesus with Martha for a second in this passage. She quickly comes to Jesus and asks her question, where were you? That's the paraphrase. Where were you? But she also asks, adds this awesome theological afterthought. Hey, Jesus, here's a ready-made answer. Verse 21. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This afterthought is beautiful. It's certainly right to say. But I think the passage bears out that Martha doesn't really believe that. Okay? She doesn't really believe that Jesus can do anything. So when Jesus says, your brother will rise again... Martha thinks, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And gives another beautiful, correct, theologically appropriate answer in verse 24. She's thinking, though, to herself silently, Jesus might have been able to heal Lazarus when he was sick. Maybe he would have provided a lot of funeral food for everyone gathered because he's good at that kind of thing. But he's not able to actually raise people from the dead. Everybody has limits, after all. But this is why Jesus makes such an effort to correct her in her misunderstanding with verses 25 through 26. He tells Martha, and he tells us a powerful truth. And it's this. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Everyone who believes in me shall shall live, shall never die. Let's take this weighty statement, verse by verse, phrase by phrase for a second, okay? Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. I'm the resurrection. Okay? According to R.C. Sproul, this means, let me just give, him your, give you his paraphrase. I don't just teach the resurrection. I don't just teach about it. I am the resurrection. I have the power to raise people from the grave. That's what he's saying. Then Jesus says, I am the life. That is, I am the eternal life. This and the explanation after it mean that if we believe in Jesus, we never really die. We never really die. Physical, biological death is not the last word in our life. Does that make sense? We live spiritually, even getting on our then-perfected bodies back to us when Jesus comes again to the earth. That's a pretty powerful thing to say. Tim Keller puts the whole thing well, verses 25 through 26 well, when he says, he puts it together for us. He says, Jesus is promising to turn death into resurrection. He's promising to turn death into resurrection. He's saying, I'm going to bring out of this death something even greater 
than death. Something even greater than the life that was before. In other words, those who believe in Jesus will never die and always live. And the quality of the new spiritual life that comes from Jesus is not the same as the old biological life. It's far, far greater. It's better by far. C.S. Lewis has a great way of describing the new life. That is, the, in its climax, heaven. He does, it a great, he does a great job of it in many works. One work, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis writes about his wife, Joy Gresham. Joy Gresham dies painfully of cancer right after they get married. And he writes this about, um, about heaven. He says, Don't come to me talking about the reliefs of religion, or I shall suspect you don't understand. We know that heaven can't be filled with family reunions on the further shore and cigars. Reality never repeats. The exact same thing is never taken back and given back. We should all like the happy past restored, but that's not what heaven is like. It's not just the happy past restored. Instead, Lewis, in other words, tells us something really, really powerful. He says, the worst moment in heaven, the absolute worst moment of heaven, far, far, far exceeds far surpasses the absolute best moment here on earth. And pleasure and intimacy. That is a huge promise. And I think he does a great job of unpacking it. He explains that when it comes to like heaven and to eternal life, some of us yawn because we're like a little boy whose chief delight in life is chocolate. We love chocolate. And that little boy, okay... Imagine sitting down with that little boy and telling him about the rest of life and saying, you know, uh, Scotty, um, you know, chocolate isn't the end-all be-all. There's a day you'll actually learn to drive a car and you'll have absolute freedom to go wherever you want as long as you have gas money. (laughs) And Scotty goes, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Do I get to chew a chocolate truffle while I shift the gears? Because that's what I really want to know. And you go, you're missing the point, Scotty. Hold on, let me tell you another thing. Scotty, you are actually, there's going to be a moment in your life where you're going to kiss somebody else. And like, fireworks are going to go off like a Disney movie inside of you. I promise. Or it'll be really awkward. And, <laughs> and he asks you in the midst of you selling the big kiss, he says, look, I got a question for you. Are there rest periods so that I can eat my Twix bar? Like, can we take a break from this lip locking so I can get some chocolate into my system? Right? Heaven, life after earth, for those who believe in Jesus, heaven is far better, far bigger than any lame condolence, any lame funeral greeting card can comprehend. Heaven, life after death, eternal life, is so much greater than any theological understatement can grasp. Here's a thought experiment to try for just a second. Take the thing, the person that you love most in this life. The thing that makes you feel like life is not worth living if it was taken away from you. The he, the she, the it that makes death actually scary. That makes it feel like death is worth denying because you're so afraid of being without that person or that thing. Okay? Thought experiment. Now imagine the resurrection and the life is far bigger than that thing. He is far better than that person. 
For the Christian, this is more than a thought experiment. This is the truth daily upon which we walk. Death is merely a doorway to deeper delight. There's nothing to fear there. Death is not a denial of all pleasure. Death isn't nothing but annihilation and loss. Death is a doorway to all the pleasures that you and I are gasping for. We're absolutely gasping for it. Look, this isn't a plug for suicide. I'm not saying like, hey, end your life now, it'll be better. That's not what I'm saying, because I think you're missing the point. Okay? It's a different vision for how we live and how we die. If Jesus is truly our resurrection and our life, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's what Paul means there. It's hard to wrap our heads around, I know. It's hard to wrap my head around. In our passage, Jesus turns from Martha and addresses Mary and then Lazarus. Whereas Jesus bluntly told Martha the way it was about death in verses 17 through 27, Jesus tenderly shows Mary, then Lazarus, then us, that love, his love, is bigger than death. In verses 28 through 46, Jesus first shows us what he thinks of death to Mary. And then he shows Lazarus what he does to death. Verses 28 through 37, at Martha's insistence, maybe her brow beating a little bit, Mary finally kind of drags herself out to the the pathway and meets Jesus. And Mary says the same thing that Martha said, right? That, That comment that's really just a question. She says, verse 32, Lord, if you had been there, my brother Lazarus would not have died. But we need to read verses 32 and 33 carefully, because if we read them carefully, we notice that she doesn't say that with a tone of accusation. She says that with a tone of desperation. She is a weeping mess, collapsed on the feet of Jesus. She can barely hold herself together. So how does Jesus respond to that? Does he give her another, like, does does he respond to Mary just like Martha? Does he give, like, some sort of, like, theological discourse? Another rational answer for an irrational problem? Some sort of theology of the resurrection and the life? No. No. This is one of the most amazing passages in the Bible. The God of the, of the entire universe, the heavens and the earth, created everything, sustains everything, will finish and complete and perfect everything at the end of time. What does he do? Two words. Jesus wept. He wept. Can you even get your head around this? Can I get my head around it? Jesus weeps for us. He weeps with us. He weeps for Mary and with Mary. He weeps over death. Not because he has to, but because he understands. He sympathizes with how hard it is to live with death, swirling every which way about us. Which is a beautiful thing. Imagine all of us surrounded by the deaths of friends, acquaintances, strangers, even the fear of our potential death looming when we step off the curb of a street. All of these things Jesus understands and sympathizes with. And he's personally, he's personally weeping for each and every one of us about that. And this should encourage us in a word of application not to try to go and fix people who are grieving. Not to go and try to fix people who are fearing death or fearing other things around us. This charges us not to ignore death, 
not to close ourselves off from the pain of it. We have to enter into suffering. We have to enter into other people's suffering. And we have to grieve and weep with those who are grieving and weeping. Look, when Emily Lyon died a year ago, my temptations were a ton of things. My mind went every which direction. It really did. All I wanted to do was harden my heart at the end of the day and just go into survival mode. You know what I mean? I thought, there's only one week or a week and a half until Thanksgiving break, and then a couple weeks till winter break, and then I'm just going to get through this, I'm going to have a month, and I'm going to be fine. There was so much fear behind that. There was so much fear about failure. There was so much fear about what would my family life look like? What would my ministry life look like? There's so much fear about, could Jesus handle this? Can he handle that? There was so much fear about guilt, the guilt of not loving her well, which frankly we all didn't love her well, who knew her. And I was frozen, I felt frozen to speak Jesus into the teeth of death. But even as I waited, I waited to enter into the suffering of of Emily's friends, of Emily's family, of the people that knew Emily, even in RUF. Other REF campus ministers, even some of you, rallied around me and encouraged me to go into the suffering. I can't tell you how many texts and emails and calls I got. I can't tell you how many words of encouragement I received. And this communication, these people, this community of suffering, this community of sorrow for my sorrow, enabled me to enter in and to feel for them. To feel for the people in Emily's wake. To feel maybe in some way for myself. And it also enabled me to ultimately wrestle with Jesus. And that's what the denial of death is all about, by the way. We just don't want to go there. We don't want to wrestle with Jesus and ask him some really hard questions. I can't say I asked him every question. Maybe just a few. Let me just show you the passage says about the kind of questions that we ask. Mary in Jesus' encounter tells us this. These are the kind of questions. Will we, will you and I weep at Jesus' feet? Will we weep at his feet about the death around us? Will we flip the channel? Are we really ready to face the death inside of us? Four rotten days worth of death. Four rotten days worth of death. As always, Jesus leads the charge for us. It's not like we're on our own. We don't just follow Jesus. He's with, he's with us. He's empowering us. And we see this in verses 33 through 38. We see that sorrow isn't the only emotion that Jesus leads with. He also leads with one other very powerful emotion. He's angry. He's ticked. He's, he's upset and in a rage about death. Look at the translation is pretty poor here. When we look at deeply moved or greatly troubled, these are inadequate. The original Greek of verse 33 actually means something more like quaking with rage. He's quaking with rage. Verse 38, Jesus isn't just deeply moved. He's literally in the Greek roaring and snorting with anger like a bull. He's not mad at Mary. He's not mad at Lazarus. He's mad at death. He's raging at death. In the words of Dylan Thomas, a poet, Jesus is raging, raging against the dying of the light. 
Jesus hates death. He hates to see the suffering it causes all of us. And so out of compassion for us, out of anger at death, Jesus enters Lazarus' tomb and he commands Lazarus to come out. Verses 38 through 44. An interesting side note, what if he hadn't said Lazarus and he just said come out? Every single tomb would have opened. Every single dead man would have risen. That's how powerful that command was. And it's a moment, though, before Lazarus comes out of the tomb, there's this moment when it looks like all hope is lost for Lazarus. All hope is lost for Mary and Martha. There's a moment when it seems like Jesus is too late, and the dark and the evil and the suffering are just too great. And the beautiful thing is that then and there, now and forevermore, Jesus raises the dead. Jesus raises the dead. The dead man Lazarus walks. He's unbound and free from the cords of death that entangled him. It's a beautiful story. and It's a miracle that sends some people into belief and some people into the arms of the Pharisees with a plot to kill Jesus because it's that controversial and it's that polarizing. Either get it or you don't. Either get it or I don't. But the miracle is really only a temporary fix. Do you realize that Lazarus is going to die again? In fact, he did die again. He just died of a different thing. Which is amazing to think about. Okay? So our culture's obsession with a longer life, more and more years through, through health care and through health and fitness routines, a longer lifespan is a, is a temporary fix to an eternal problem. It's placing a mere hurdle against the hurtling path of death. We need a poor permanent reality. We need a resurrection in life. We need a Jesus who dies for us and raised three days in a stink, after three days sitting and laying in a stinky tomb with death linens and shrouding him. Just like Lazarus. And the good news is that Jesus has done just this. The good news is that historically, in the real world, for real people, Jesus died and rose again 2,000 years ago. And he didn't die again after he rose. He lived on and on and on forevermore. Because it promises if, if us, if we believe in Jesus, if we believe that he did this, that we'll go on and on and on forevermore. Because he did it. And we live in his power. And that's what trust is. So Jesus and Lazarus encounter asks us a question. Do we know Jesus? Will we run to him now and the rest of our days? Or will death be the end? Will death be the end where we refuse to think and to, and to feel and to go numb? I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. The promise of Jesus, the promise of Jesus is that death is just a chuckle in the darkness. Death is just a chuckle in the darkness. It's that small. Let me, let me end with a story. Um, there's a pastor named Jack Howell. Uh, in Virginia, who tells a story about a 25-year-old man named Peter Flinton. This young man, Peter, and his, and his young bride had just graduated from college, a Christian college even, and they had come to his church uh, in Tidewater, Virginia. And they were these wonderful people, young, energetic, bright, mission-minded. They wanted to be lifelong, full-time missionaries. And Jack could not have been more excited about it. I mean, even the, the wife who was in law school was going to law school so that she could go and learn how to set 
women free from the sex trade. That's what she was doing. About a month, though, after they arrived at the church, Peter um, got cancer. He got cancer. Testicular cancer. And the doctors caught it early, though, and they treated him, and they removed it. And it seemed like he was better. Eight months later, the cancer came back. And this time it spread to his gut. And the doctors, again, were optimistic. They removed part of his larger intestine. Okay, They gave him tons of chemo. And surprisingly, against all odds, he's thrived. A year and a half later, though, Peter got the cancer again. This time, the cancer spread to every single organ in his body. 27 years old. 27 year old. At that point, everyone in the church knew it was a losing battle. Everyone in the hospitals knew it was a losing battle. And Jack and his church, all they could do was visit Peter and his, and his now soon-to-be-a-widow wife over and over and over again, trying to speak words of comfort, but to themselves in the dark corners of their minds and their hearts in the dark corners of the church, asking hard questions. Like, this couple, this age, cancer, where is God in all this? So Peter lose, loses all of his hair. He lost all of his hair. He lost 65 pounds. He was a shadow of himself. But Jack, the pastor, continues to visit him. And Peter, every time Jack visits, asks him, Pastor Jack, can you read me a prayer from Valley of Vision? Pastor Jack, can you read me the scriptures again? I need to hear them. But as Peter grows weaker and weaker, he starts talking to Pastor Jack about his funeral. What he wants and what he doesn't want at his funeral. Finally, Peter dies. And Jack goes to the family of Peter at night, that very night, and he talks to him about funeral arrangements. And he sits him down, and he leans and he says, you know, Peter had a funny request at the end of his life. He wanted to be buried in a pink button-down shirt with a Yoda tie. <laughs> a Star Wars Yoda tie. And everyone's a little bit confused, but they honor his last wishes, and so the funeral goes on, there's a visitation, the casket's open, Peter's there in his pink button-down shirt and his Star Wars Yoda tie, and everyone sees it, the entire funeral passes by Peter in his pink button-down shirt and his Yoda tie. And Jack, uh, Jack uh, Howell, at the end of uh, this ordeal, he's talking to his church about it, and he says, you know what, I think that, you know why Peter dressed in a Yoda tie like that? I think that Peter wanted the last laugh. He wasn't just comedic. He didn't just want to make everyone laugh at his funeral. He wanted the last laugh because Peter got it. Peter got it. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how heartbreaking it gets, no matter how little we want to go there about how heartbreaking and bad it gets, Jesus gets the last laugh. Jesus gets the last laugh. Jesus wins. And that fact, that truth, changes the way we live, and it changes the way we die. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a hard sermon. Um, There's lots of text. There's lots of death. But there's a lot of Jesus. And I pray that you'd help us to cling to Jesus. Help us to hold on to his robes. Help us to cling tight with everything we've got. 
knowing full well, Father, that your hands cling tight to us. I pray that you would be with us in our hearts and our minds. Um, it's a semester that drags. It's a semester where school mounts and friends feel like they're sometimes there and sometimes not. And I pray that you would meet us where we are. You'd give us comfort and you'd help us to come to you as we are quickly, truly. Have compassion on us. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.